STEMQ New England Northwest brings together expertise in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics from across the region. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and here on the STEMQ podcast, you'll be hearing from leaders in industry, community, government, and universities about the groundbreaking innovations that are happening right here in regional New South Wales. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country at the University of New England in Armidale. Welcome back to Stories of STEMQ. This episode, I'm joined by the Director of the Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit at the University of New England, Dr. Steve Miller. Steve, thanks for joining me. Just glad to be here. Now, Animal Genetics and Breeding, well, the Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit, otherwise known as AGBU, uh, if I've, I've learned anything about this university, it's that they love a, an acronym. Right. <laughs> That's one of them. We're specifically talking about genetics and breeding in livestock production, right? That's uh, certainly where it started out, but now we're involved in uh, other things as well, besides uh, the traditional livestock. So, uh, All right, so there's not necessarily a a focal breed or species that you're looking at? Well, we've done um, a lot of work, and we're probably best known for a lot of the work we've done in beef, cattle, and sheep. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the genetic tools that are available to uh, breeders in Australia today and around the world, really, uh, for sheep and beef cattle were developed at Agbu. Um, but in over over the years, we've added um, pigs and trees were added relatively early on, but now we've got projects in honeybees, uh, prawns, um, row crops like chickpeas. We're starting some projects in, in those uh, yeah, aspects as well. So Looking at the sort of list of publications coming out of Agbu and there's ostriches and saltwater crocodiles and it's being applied to whole lots of stuff. Is that change because markets are changing or simply technology is being applied to new markets? Yeah, so I guess that's one of the unique things or one of the advantages of working in genetics or... Um, is that the principles are the same. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're, you know, you're selecting for better sheep, or you're selecting for better bees, um, you know, the, all, all the mathematics and the programming and things that go into that, the traits are different, obviously, and the size of the genome is different, but the underlying underlying principles can be applied. So I'd say in, in um, if you think about, well, just how livestock breeding has kind of evolved, yeah, things like Beef cattle and, and dairy cattle were kind of early adopters because of, of the data collection. But then over time, um, these other species have said, "Well, we've got to we've got to take advantage of that same technology." So it's, it's kind of you're picking up species as you go, type of thing. And I guess for people that aren't working in the industry, we should probably cover why diving into the genetics is important. I mean, isn't it just as simple as picking your prize stud and? setting him off to pasture, letting him do his thing? Yeah, yeah. so if, I guess if you take a step back and kind of a history lesson, that's that's where things were. Like, say, let's say my grandfather was into um, shorthorn breeding way back in the 30s or something, you know, so that was very much it, you know, like he would have had a, a bull that won, you know, champion at a, a show somewhere, and then everyone would say, well, I want to buy a champion bull, and that's who I want to turn out with my cattle, but the problem is um, there's a difference between phenotype. Phenotype is what we see, and genotype is the genetic value of the animal for breeding. Mm-hmm. And those two things aren't perfectly correlated. So I could have an animal that looks really great, but it actually doesn't produce the best progeny. And, and uh, vice versa, whereas we're, we actually apply 
using real records and data to untangle the genetics from that environment. So this is this is given the differences in environment, this is the best this is the best animal. So you know you, you could have great genetics, but if they're if there's a drought or something, you know, they don't perform the same as when a season like we have this year where there's lots of grass around. So you have to you have to untangle all the the environmental effects from the genetic effects. And that's kind of what what makes what is the well, I guess the methods that make egg boot tick or what we offer to the to the breeders. So what might be hiding in a I guess a poor genome, sort of like disease susceptibility or or potential for inbreeding? What sort of things are you actually looking for? Yeah. So that's that's actually been um, so Agbu was started as a unincorporated joint venture between New South Wales Department of Primary Industries um, or its predecessors. New South Wales government and the University of New England in 1976. So back then we didn't have any DNA information at all. It was all it was all animals performance records, you know, their weaning weight, say in beef cattle, and the pedigree that's been collected for generations, in some cases back to like the 1800s or something. Um, but starting here about 2005, six and onwards, we've been getting more and more of what we might call like DNA data. So today, in the last five years, a big development has been using what we call SNP chip data or whole genome data on every animal. So there's, you know, pushing 200,000 merino sheep in Australia now that are basically genotyped on that platform. And that gives us a lot more information in terms of predicting the animal's genetic merit. And we're still there's still a long way to go there's a there's a lot more accuracy using the actual genotype information but the genotype information is still not valuable without all that performance records because we don't have like this encyclopedia to say okay this of the 20 million variants that are that we know about in angus that this one causes a you know a half a pound increase in in weaning weight or something like that um we have to we have to figure that all out based on based on data. So we have to combine all the genotypes, the 200,000 genotypes with with all the performance records and come up with what that formula is. But you said what what's kind of hiding in the genome. Um, it was interesting once they once we started doing a lot of genotyping say in dairy cattle, they identified there's actually segments of of the genome where although they genotype, you know, 100,000 animals or something, no animal had two copies. But they knew there was lots of sires that carried a copy and lots of dams that carried a copy, so they sh at some stage, they should have come together and produced two-copy offspring, but they never had any. And what was happening there was it was actually an uh, embryonic lethal. So in the two-copy okay. state, the embryo died. Mm. And so the breeder never sees that. You know, the, mm. the cow gets bred. Um the embryo dies, and then the cow just recycles and gets bred and calves a bit later. You know, calves 21 days later, 28 days later. So that was something. So there is stuff hiding in the genome, and we're working to figure them out. Mm. So it's not necessarily the case that you always know the specific gene for a specific trait. Like you were saying before, you can look at the genomes and look at, I guess, the, the lineology of a, a, a different strain or group of animals and track something that's going on there without actually being able to say, yep, that sequence there is the gene. 
Uh, yeah, you're you're yeah you're touching on um, kind of an interesting uh, topic, I guess, and aspect of animal genetics. But if we go back to say 1976, the idea that AGBU was formed was there was a new technology, which is called best linear unbiased product prediction or BLUP, right? So this BLUP technology. So the idea was now that we have pretty big computers in 1976, which weren't that big, but <laughs> enough that we could actually combine all this pedigree data and all the performance data and run it through these equations to disentangle the environment from the genetics. And that was that was groundbreaking and it was used all around the world and um, really leveraged off the increase in, in computing power. And people would kind of call it like a black box because breeders before were used to just the phenotypes, just the measurements, right? So my cow that produces the most milk obviously sees the best genetics and that's the one I use. And now they come along with this, you know, computers and equations and we stick all the data in and the other side comes the numbers to say these bulls are better than these ones. And that's kind of like a black box to genetics in terms of the breeder. Um, and then we turned on but then, you know, um, DNA technology started getting a hold. And in the early days, it was almost a bit of, there's Agbu with their big data and black box approach. But these folks over here are going to find the genes and they're going to say, I'm going to find the gene for marbling or going to find the gene for litter size. And we won't need to do all this recording and the black box stuff anymore. And that kind of ran when I first started in grad school in, um, 1993, you know, I was given some wisdom by somebody said, you know, you shouldn't go into this animal breeding stuff with, you know, the big <laughs> black box approach. You should go across the road and get involved in the DNA side because they're going to find all the genes and you guys are going to be obsolete. Well, I didn't do that. Um, and it's actually gone slightly the other way. Mm. So once, once these, what we call SNP chips, which allows you to genotype lots of animals for lots of SNPs across the whole genome came available. There's a lot of genotyping done, and there's kind of a famous quote by, uh, you know, one of the people that's well-known in animal breeding, but when you, when you first analyze your data, you produce what they call a Manhattan plot, and it's called a Manhattan plot because in Manhattan you have skyscrapers, and if you, so you're plotting out across the genome all the SNPs that influence a trait, and then when you come across a region that's really important, you get this big peak, and it looks like a skyscraper, like the... the, 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 the um, the skyline of Manhattan is what it should look like. And so he analyzed his dairy data, and he found it, he called it a Manhattan plot, but he called it Manhattan, Kansas, because there is a town in Manhattan, Kansas, where Kansas State University is, but there's no skyscrapers there. Right? It's all bungalows and, you know, typical university buildings. So the, the point was there really wasn't these skyscrapers that people thought there was. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't that. There was just, um, you know, a handful of genes with huge effects that were controlling the traits. There's all this low-level um, ground ground clutter mm. that's influencing it, and we call that like polygenetic. Like there's like just lots of genes involved, mm -hmm. and actually this black box approach actually works really well because it tracks all that all that small stuff that all adds up to be big differences between the animals, and so we're back to a black box again. Mm -hmm. And so that's continued to be the approach we have. Um, People have got a lot of data now, and we can f we can find genes with, um, you know, we know this gene is, is having a big effect on a trait and things, but the way we analyze it in our models and things is still very much a inheritance model, which which works really well. And we're not there's a few cases where there's some there are genes of really big effect. For example, there's a gene, um, 
It's called myostatin, which causes animals to basically have like double muscling, which is where you get this muscle hypertrophy, which is um, you probably see, you can see some pictures on the internet and some, some dogs that have double muscling or cattle mm. that have double muscling. Um, and that, so that's a gene that has a, a big effect. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are literally like handfuls of those that we've discovered and quantified and really know about them. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, there's just a whole lot more going on in the genome that we track. Yeah, because I guess it's almost implied or, or portrayed in popular media as if it's, you know, you want to, I don't know, a line of pigs that doesn't get sunburnt. You just get the gene from this other thing and you insert it into a pig and, hey, presto, you've got, you know, sunproof pigs. Yeah. I'm guessing that's not the reality. Well, <laughs> but... it, it's... um. It's easy to think, and it's so. In, in some cases, like that, there there are um, so things like the co- the color of the animal's coat, say, right? Mm. There's you know there's a gene that controls that in in some in some breeds. Mm. So that's pretty simple. Um, there in dairy cattle, for example, there we know about a, lic- a locus we call the slick locus. So literally, if you think about um, the coat of the animal, so this if you think about slick, it's kind of you don't have as much hair. It's kind of, mm-hmm. it's, it's so in the summertime they're and they're more heat tolerant in some, in some, uh, in some regions. So there's companies out there looking to get the slick locust, for example, into Holstein cattle. Mm-hmm. So it comes from like Senapole cattle from Columbia, I think, but let's, you know, so, but that's this are Senapole cattle here in, in Australia. And so you can just through tra- traditional breeding, we could get the slick locust into other, other breeds which okay. could be could be beneficial um so there is there is that mm-hmm. but a lot of what we do for breeding is we want to make animals that are basically more efficient and have got better product quality and it doesn't usually come down to i want to make them black or i want to make them with a slick coat or something there's mm-hmm. you're back to you're back to there's lots of genes involved yeah, it's not the the designer baby's future that we we think of of sci-fi movies. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always a mixing and matching, really, of of genetics. That's really mm. what's happening. So, the really interesting thing now that we have all this DNA data is you can you can um, just typical inheritance how we've thought about it. You know, you're half you're from your mother and half from your father, um, but you've got grandparents on top of that, and you're not a quarter of each of your grandparents. Because, you know, your mother is a half of her mother and her father. But what she passes to you is a mixture of those two. Mm. This Mendelian sampling, if you go back to your um, school genetics or basic yeah. genetics stuff. Um, so we've got case. Now we can see, now we genotype lots of animals. We can actually see, for example, a bull, you know, calf born today, you know, where they've inherited all of chromosome two from... Oh, you know, yeah, well. from one of those grandparents, you know, yeah. what there was the, the mixing. It's, 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 um, it's really interesting. So there's a, there's a whole lot. Breeders have always known there's a lot of variation from one, um, you know, if you, especially in cattle, cause you can have these embryo, you, we could do embryo, embryo flushing and get, you know, here's 10, 10 full sibs, all the same mother, all the same father. And you look at the variation there amongst them in terms of their, what they've inherited from those grandparents and there's just there's a huge range mm. and so that's what the the dna technology we can actually pick that up because some of those grandparents are much better than others for certain traits and then it basically tracks that i guess my immediate assumption hearing that 
Hagabuka's been around since the 70s was then it would be sort of completely different now than it was then because of the advances in uh, genetic technology. But you're kind of saying it's not necessarily like the technology's advanced, but right. the, the theoretical framework is applied in similar ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like we're we're kind of still riding the same horse in a way. Mm. This kind of bluff technology is still the core of what of what gets done, mm. but there's just more information coming into it now with the DNA. And this that wasn't if we go back to 1993, the advice I got was opposite to that. Mm. They said that that bluff approach is going to be old hat, and it's all going to be about the genes and their effects. And like you said, you just designer baby you just stack up the <laughs> the genes that you know you genotype for those and you stack mm. up the alleles with um but it's it's kind of it's actually made the tech it's actually made this kind of approach or what agbu does even more important because now not only do we got all that pedigree and performance data now we get all this genotype data so it's mm. it's it's um and so really i think what's unique about what agbu has delivered or what's been unique is it's actually computer programming to handle all the data. Back in 1976, you know, how do you get all this data to work through a computer in 1976? Um, the data sets have grown, and now with genomics, they've grown an incredible amount. Mm-hmm. You've got, you got 50,000, or up even today, it, it keeps increasing all the time, but let's say 50,000. Um, gen- we call them single nucleotide polymorphisms, or just differences in the DNA. So when, you, when they genotype an animal, they get 50,000 of those data points for an animal and there's now 200,000 of those animals with 50,000 points in the in the in the equation so it's 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 getting even though we think well computers are obviously a whole lot more powerful than they were in 1976 but that's still the challenge is getting all our data to actually fit in even today's even today's Mm. computers so obviously being based at the university Agabu is busily doing research and Dealing with, like you said, there's there's hard problems. How does one agri does actually then interact with people on the ground, with farmers and producers? What's what's the intermediary there? Yeah, so that's um, maybe a bit what's unique about Agbu as well, in that it's um, so it's a, like a genetic institute at at the university, and what we the research that we do actually gets does get applied direct. To farmers, so there's a couple a couple ways. So let's say in in sheep, there's a service called Sheep Genetics. So breeders in the country will be sending um, and interacting with this organization called Sheep Genetics. But the numbers that come out of Sheep Genetics actually come out from Agbu. So the data, um, you know, the breeders can be submitting their data to Sheep Genetics and getting the results from Sheep Genetics. But behind the scenes, it's the Agbu Agbu mm. software. So so. Sheep breeders today in, in Australia um, get what they call Australian sheep breeding values, ASBVs. Mm-hmm. And, in, and then there's a, a way to kind of combine, because some of those breeding values are going to be for production traits like growth traits, or they might be for reproductive traits, um, litter size and survival and those things, or it might be to do with the end product quality. And then the question for the breeder is, well, I'm faced with all these traits, so what's my best ram? Mm-hmm. And so they, they all go into an index based on the economics because some of those things are worth more yeah. than others in terms of a unit increase. So that gets combined into an index. But they get all those values um, basically from sheep genetics. So there's a there's kind of a direct link then between the numbers that come out of Agbu and they feed right to the breeders um, through that intermediary. 
So is it like the, the information and the knowledge that Angry is coming up with can get developed into, I guess, a product or a service yeah. that can be accessed by people? Who's, who's developing the actual products? So in, in beef cattle, there's a product called Breed Plan. And Breed Plan is commercialized through the Australian Business Research Institute, which is here at UNE as well. Okay. So, well, it's on it's on the UNE campus, but down um, down the short run there in in with MLA. So, sheep genetics is run through MLA, and Breed Plan is run through ABRI, is is the acronym, mm-hmm. and they have been the commercializer since the beginning of of Breed Plan, which mm-hmm. is those breeding values going out to farmers. So. Here in Australia, if you're a, a, a breed society, let's say you're the Angus Association, so if you're an Angus breeder, you're a member of the Angus Association, or the, get my get my uh, words right, um, Australian Angus, I think is the term. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 a, a member of Australian Angus, and Angus Australia. Sorry, I got that got that wrong. So you're a member of uh, Angus Australia. You submit all your data to Angus Australia. Angus Australia's got a contract with um, ABRI mm-hmm. to calculate the breeding values. So they're going to send their data to ABRI and get the results back. So what what Agbu delivers to ABRI is the software. Mm-hmm. So we don't we don't um, in that case we're not doing the day to day service delivery yeah. of interacting with with um, Angus Australia and uh, um, getting files back and forth and. So they, they look after all that. Um, yeah. but we've got basically the, we developed the, the breed plan software. Yeah, it's not like farmers are expected to, to download an app where they can manage all their own genetic information. There's, there's services here right. provided to them, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and a lot of that through like a third breeder with a, with a breed society like that, then the breed society has the other ways for them to, access access through information yeah i guess that was going to be my next question like is it the kind of thing that's available to a large industry organization or is it the kind of thing that an individual you know, small hobby farmer might be dealing directly with where i guess what's the level of organization i guess yeah so there's um it depends on the on the species because mm-hmm. in in you know in sheep and beef cattle it's it's made up of a lot of individual breeders and some breeders might have very few cows other ones might have thousands mm-hmm. um, but they're all they can all put data into the system so mm. you know um, take a breed society whether it's herefords or, or wagyu or whatever you what have you know they're going to have um, members of all sizes but they all have access to the same same tools mm. which is which is great um, the other the other side of that might be other species say um, in pigs, you tend to have, it has to do somewhat with the reproduction rate in, in the livestock species. Cause when you, the, the higher your reproductive rate, the more likely you have, um, you get, you get a more corporate structure, especially in breeding because a corporation, let's say if you're a, a, um, a, in chicken breeding, you know, you, a, a chicken's going to lay 280 eggs this year or more. Um, well that's potentially 280 offspring. Whereas in beef cattle, you're going to get one. Yeah. So it's for any one company to own enough land and resources to have enough cows to generate enough bulls is, is, is the problem. Whereas if I, but I could actually, because, because of the kind of the uh, reproductive rate, I could keep, um, a company could own all the genetic stock to supply 
Australia with chickens. Mm. And so, and so in that case, then you get a, you get a company who basically does a genetic evaluation like what we do for all of Australia, all of all of Australia for beef cattle, but it's just done for for a company. So it's a little bit different. And who's collecting the genetic information? Well, the, the, who's taking who's the blood samples? Or... Yeah. So in in beef and in sheep and that, it's actually the breeders that own the cattle. Okay. So yep. So there's and there's different. Um, it's quite a streamlined uh, process. So there's different labs in that that offer the service for the genotyping. And in cattle and sheep, there's what they call a tissue sampling unit, which basically punches a little hole in the ear, but that sample then goes into a tube, which has a way to preserve that DNA, and it gets capped, so it's basically just like an ear tag, putting an ear tag in, but at the end you get this little um, barcoded sample collector mm-hmm. uh, with the sample in there and a barcode, and then you're going to ship them off to um, get the genotyping done. So so the breeder themselves takes, takes the samples and, for the most part, collects all the data, mm-hmm. you know, weighing their animals, um, Fleece weight and quality and and those types of measurements. I mean, the products you're talking about, you're saying are already adopted by uh, big industry bodies and are also supported by government bodies as well. Yeah. Is there market for more products in this space? It's not like a, a startup zone, is it? Well, there there are. Um... There's, yeah, there's, there's more and more, com- what you might say, there's more and more competition in the space. Okay. Especially with the advent of DNA technology. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that, that DNA technology has enabled is, before you couldn't get it very, so let's say, you know, here's an animal that's born, I know it's sire and I know it's dam, and so it's, it's my best estimate of its genetic merit is just the average of the parents, right? And that mm-hmm. has some value, but... There could be a big range in what that animal actually is. Mm-hmm. Then we come along. We say, well, actually, we'll wait till the animal will get will get its birth weight, and that's gonna that's gonna have some predictive ability for what its genetic value is for birth weight, and then we could get its weaning weight, and and we get the measurements on the animal, and that gives us more accuracy. Now, if the animal actually has progeny, then that gives us a lot more accuracy, but that comes a lot later. Mm-hmm. So, but with DNA, basically, now I can genotype that animal at birth. And if I have enough data, I can get a more accurate estimate of his merit than if I actually measured the phenotypes on the animals itself. Hmm. So what that's created is it's created a market for companies to um, say to a farmer, well, you know, I can actually deliver you now a genetic service in terms Hmm. of uh, you don't have to do the phenotyping. Um, Give us the DNA and we'll give you a prediction on those animals. So that has created more um, kind of... Startups, if you will, if you want to call them that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm almost picturing this sort of future version of, of uh, you know, animal auctions. You know, it's it's not just about going and looking at the shine of their coats or something, right? Is is there? It's actual yep. DNA technology actually changing the animal market. Yeah. So the a little. So that's and that's starting to happen. Yeah. So say for sheep, for example, there's a product we call Flock Profile. Mm-hmm. That was put together, and basically, it it um, it gives you the average of a of a of a flock. So you you genotype twenty animals, and then their breeding values are average. And you say, okay, the average the average for that group that's their genetic profile, I guess you'd say, for the different traits. Mm-hmm. 
Well, now when you sell those animals on a uh, auction service, you know, an online auction or something, you can put those results up to say, well, All right. these aren't just, you know, uh, yearling yearling merino ewes or something. Mm. They're yearling merino ewes, and here's their average merit for, okay. for all these traits. Yeah. So it is. It is. Um, that's starting to happen. And is that is that being adopted easily, or are people still? Scratching that, their heads a bit about it? That's, I think, we're just seeing it happen. Yeah, okay. The flock profile thing's been around for a little while, but it's it's really just starting to get some traction. Mm. Yeah. Now, you joined Agbu first as deputy director uh, the year before last. Is that the role that brought you here to Armadale? That, yes. So, yeah. I le- yeah, I left. Um, we we took a job. I was with the American Angus Association in, in the U.S., mm-hmm in uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, and I was there for about four years, so genetic research director. And then we moved here in uh, October 2020 in the middle of COVID. Um, <laughs> and uh, been been here since. Did, did COVID play a part in the move or just happened no. that way? Oh, it was just, it was, it was just in the way, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, st- I, I was actually here at Agbu uh, back in 1995 as a visiting PhD right. student from Canada. And uh, same building. So I'm just I've moved from a graduate student office up to the up to the corner office I guess, um, but it's no it's uh, um, and and part of the reason to come here back then in 1995 was Agbu is is yes it's world leading in animal genetics, and um, I guess the experience we had here in '95 we realized it's a pretty good place to live too so trying to combine you know great place to live and uh, great opportunity and so it came up and so. We went for it, and then COVID happened. That was February, and then COVID happened, and we had to negotiate all that. It doesn't help international travel plans. No, it must have just been such a weird time to get settled in a new town as well in the middle of all this. Yeah, very much. And people still say, you know, well, it's it's kind of um, hopefully we get out of it because it's it is hard to start in a role when everyone's remote. Yeah, you know, everyone's at you know, you know, and people were in the office when I showed up, but then later we're back to remote, and um, so it has been, it has has been on on uh, not ideal mm. from that perspective. But uh, I guess in Armadale, I, I what I what I find in Australian generals, people are people are very friendly and open, so mm. it's um, it's been good from that perspective. It's always interesting hearing these stories about this region i guess punching above its weight a little bit like you said it's sort of renowned for this sort of research and i remember talking to someone at the poultry hub a while ago that said a similar thing it's like yeah armadale is world famous in poultry everyone knows where armadale is right but as a person myself who didn't grow up in armadale i kind of never heard of the place right (laughs) you know i don't know do you feel like we need to be sharing these stories more and, and talking up the region a little yeah so i'll give you i guess um i'll give you another example of that you know we have uh it's a conference and it's called the world Com- congress for genetics applied to livestock production which is pretty specialized basically what we do mm-hmm. and it happens around the world somewhere every four years so it's kind of like the olympics of animal breeding right <laughs> and it's kind of grown to be a conference depends on where it is in the world but it might be pushing two thousand people 2000 uh-huh. attendees and so they're this year it's going to be in in uh rotterdam in the netherlands and the uh they closed out with nine close to 900 papers that are going to be presented at 800 and something mm. 
mm. presented at the conference. Um, so if you look at the world rankings in terms of countries and who presented, who's who's got the most papers at the Congress, U.S. and France are like I think a hundred, close to a hundred and eighty something. Mm. But Australia is next, number three at like sixty something papers, <laughs> and twenty two of those papers came out of Agbu. Yeah. So Australia's third in the world in terms of papers, which on a per capita basis must be really high compared to France and uh, the U.S. because we're mm. almost the same number of papers, but yeah, we got yeah. a lot less people. Um, and then to think, well, yeah, well, Australia a punches well above its weight in animal genetics period. Um, but then Agbu is a third of Australia in terms of mm. the, the, the contribution. So it is, it is, so it is world. Like if you were to people that have worked in this, in our field, I guess, around the world, if you say they know Armadale, not, mm. they know the word, they know the word, they know the place. Um, a lot of them we, we had, well, like myself, I was a visit, a visitor here way back then. Um, but Agbu's always had a really active, um, visiting scientist program so you know people from all around the world have been through here so if they people haven't been here you know their advisor you know their academic advisor's been here or mm. something there's usually there's usually some kind of a connection so yeah it's a shame that outside the field you know, armadale is known for churches and autumn leaves you know right <laughs> <laughs> like it's kind of the point of sharing these stories on the podcast is to yeah change people's perspe- perceptions of the the town a little bit you know. it, it is a little bit um it's inter- it's interesting. It depends on what you know. Different people, you know, like different things. Personally, I'm not a big city person, right? Mm. So, Armadale's fantastic because you're you can be out, you're just out in the country. You got you got national parks right there. We did a sabbatical down in Melbourne, which was great from a sabbatical point of view in terms of the science and the people we interacted with and everything. But you're in Melbourne, right? You're you're <laughs> you know for a person that wants to get out to the country and stuff. It was it was uh, like I don't I don't I'm not too sure if the same job was offered in Melbourne that we would have taken it. I wonder too if that would affect how other people view you as an expert. I mean, if you're dealing with farmers coming from Melbourne, do you think they would sort of uh, to take a second look at that and you know, who's this who's this city guy coming <laughs> to tell me what to do with my cattle? Yeah, there might there might be um I think that's if you in our field, I guess there's people that are you know there's more academic and then they're more mm. applied. So, and I've I've had lots of worked with lots of people across the whole spectrum, and some and some of them, um, you know, fantastic scientists and things can you know, crunch all the numbers and do amazing things and write new algorithms, um, but really can't relate to the they don't they just deal with the numbers and the mm. and the mathematics and and the computing, and they don't really deal with the animals and the farmers problems and they can't really communicate to the farmers and then there's a group of people that actually are um can do both mm. and those and that and there's probably a higher proportion of those people in agbu than what you'll find in other places mm. and that's and that's largely because the, of the products that we deliver it's because they you know they go straight to sheep genetics or they go straight to abri like you're a lot closer to the the people that actually use them, you can't. Mm. You can't necessarily just be a purely mathematical mind. We have some some people that do those things too, but we do have people that, um, yeah, closer to the closer to the breeders. Mm-hmm. Um, in, so in yeah, in Melbourne, for example, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the dairy research happens there because obviously the dairy industry is more in that part of the, in that part of the country. Um, here in here in Armadale, you've got a lot of the beef breed societies are here, 
and it's also um, in terms of the sheep industry. It's so, yeah, the industries like MLA is here, and so you've got a lot of the industry folks right here in the in the town as well. Having worked at a place like Agbu, but then also I guess similar organizations all across the world, really, are, are you actually dealing with? more local issues like you were just describing or the, the issues you're dealing with similar no matter where you are? Well, <clears throat> some of the things are similar wherever you are. So, for example, um, what they've dealt with in the last five years in terms of all this more genomic data and how to handle it and how to make it influence the animal's breeding values in an accurate way and do that, do that f- fast. Um, everyone around the world is dealing with the same thing. Mm. However, the animals, um, there might be trait-specific things that are specific to, to, to a region. You know, mm. so, for example, if you're um, dealing with merino sheep, you know, there's, you've got things that the the farmers are are um, dealing with something like fly strike. Say, you know, well, that's not that's not on the radar really for Icelandic sheep breeders or mm. Canadian sheep breeders. You know, so that's that's not a problem that they have to deal with. So, but the tools behind it are are can be the same in terms of the the comp the, the statistical methodologies and the computation mm. tools. You know, we can apply them to any traits really. But but then you have to have people in the building that are actually um, know something about you know fly strike and sheep and what that how we're going to measure it and record it and select to fix it and yeah. Things. So that that that's where you get into the more um, local knowledge, I guess you'd say. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's not like the products you're developing are just being used, you know, between here and Tamworth. They're used all over the place. Right. Mm. Yeah. So we have. Um, yeah, there's actually breeders. There's actually the uh, within the sheep genetic evaluation system, U.S. sheep breeders, you know, are submitting data to that as well. So mm. there's it's not. A lot of these, a lot of the evaluations are actually joint with New Zealand, so that's not as far away, but still, there's um, data coming in from multiple countries. Yeah. So it's not even just Australia. And you haven't been tempted to take the next step and start your own hobby farm and experience the other side of it as well, right? <laughs> well, I grew, I grew up. Um, I've actually stepped away from that. So <laughs> I uh, grew up on a farm with beef cattle as a kid, and then we did kind of when I was so before before America, I was. Um, well, a couple steps, but originally from Canada, mm-hmm. from uh, Ontario, and a university there. And our group in Canada would be similar to Agbu in terms of being the the group with the, the the most expertise in quantitative genetics and breeding for livestock. Mm-hmm. And so I was there for fourteen years, and I yeah, I did had the kind of um, farm on the side and producing bulls and those types of things. Um, and it was actually, so we had a big dispersion sale in 2013 and moved to New Zealand for three years and then, then to America for four years and now here. And, but we have 15 acres outside of um, Armadale here, but uh, not looking to get back into breeding anytime soon. It's, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to have the time to do that yeah, on top of the job. Full-time yeah. job in itself. Yeah. <laughs> Managing property. And the people that are at Agbury aren't just researchers and staff. There's lots of students there doing research and postgraduate research as well, right? Yeah. So we um, should have done, I should have done a, t- a tally on uh, 
four to six, I think, post-grad students at the moment Mm -hmm. um, from different places around the world. And we're going to be advertising for, um, between us and um, some work in animal genetics and animal science around um, multi-breed genetic evaluations in beef cattle, something called the Southern Multi-Breed Project. It's a big, big um, multi-million dollar project in, kicked off here in 2020. But we'll have advertisement for up to 10 post-grad students there and four more international PhD scholarships. So... Um, what I say is it's it's Agbu's um, kind of bringing in the future because I look around the building and people that have been there since the 90s, they started there as graduate students, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, um, and now they're the world leading experts in their field. And they're, those are the people we need to have at Agbu 20 years from now. So it's good to keep, keep, um, keep the post-grad students coming in. And I put a call out for if you are, um, you know, you're, you're, in science at, at university and big data and computing mathematics and statistics and things and making a difference in, for livestock producers is something that you're interested in, keep us in mind because we're, we're looking for uh, the next generation of uh, Australians who want to take this over. All right, I think that I think that's a good plug to end on. Okay, come come and join Agbu. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, we so. want the we want the yeah, bring us your best and brightest. Yeah, and they can look you up and they can look up Agbu online and and get in touch if they're interested. Yep, Agbu. Um, dot uni. Dot edu. Dot eu. So. All right, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me. Okay, thanks, James. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me here on the STEMQ podcast. Stay tuned to hear more stories as we work to empower STEM innovation through the STEMQ precinct.